0: Hey there. Hey there. So,
1: I think I'm done. Gonna head out, unless you want to chat, like we were doing earlier. Well, there's chatting time and there's working time. And I'm still on working time. Do you feel like you've done a solid day's work? What? Well, I mean, if you can put your name on this day and be proud of the amount of work you've done, then by all means, you should tootle on at home. Mm. Hmm book. Oh. Oh. Is there something else I can help you with? You know, at this point, I'm firing a lot faster than I did in the beginning. I didn't even really understand what a balance sheet was or profit and loss statements or anything like that. Well, back then, I just went into mass production. But what I would advise people to do is... I do have unique challenges because I'm not the typical business person and that's not what the employees expect. And it has been a challenge running a business because of that. Right there, this is Shin Lai. I am a medical doctor turned entrepreneur. My husband and I started our company in 2007. Just the two of us working out of our house as a hobby and then as we grew, We decided to move full-time into the business, and now we have 20 employees, and we gross a few million dollars in revenue every year.
0: And where are you located?
1: We're in Erie, Pennsylvania.
0: And tell us a little bit more about the company. I'm not sure if we got the name of it in a little bit more detail, exactly what your company does.
1: Sure. Acoustic Sheep is the name of our company. We basically make headphones that help people sleep better because they are the most comfortable headphones that you can wear in bed. As a medical doctor, about 10 years ago, we were having late night phone calls at 3 a.m. from the emergency room, and then I would wake up in the middle of the night to work. Then I would have trouble getting back to sleep and disturbing my husband. He basically wanted me to be able to sleep better, and I wanted to just fall asleep faster every single time I answer one of those phone calls. But it was really difficult to turn my mind off. And so my husband found some music for me that was very relaxing. They have something called binaural beats behind them that basically are kind of like a hypnosis for your brain and just get you to zone out. That actually worked for me. So I wanted to use it, but traditional headphones are really bulky and I couldn't sleep in them. The earbuds just hurt my ears when I tried to lay down on them. One night, we decided to make our own, and we pulled together some speakers, had various prototypes night after night. Finally, it kind of landed on the idea of putting thin speakers into a soft and stretchy headband. It actually worked for me. It stayed on all night. It was very comfortable. I could listen to my music. It sounded good. And it kind of dawned on me that I have all of these patients taking sleeping pills, I wanted to offer them something different, something more natural and non-addictive. I thought, well, if I have all of these patients, maybe there are a lot other patients out there that would benefit from using something like music to help them sleep. That's kind of how the company started. We just sat down every night after work. I would sew and my husband would solder and we would make sleep phones. And then these sleep phones sold out by Christmas. We had made 500 of them ourselves. Any lucky people bought them in 2007. They were handmade (laughs) by me and my husband.
0: You sold 500 of them before Christmas. When did you start making them?
1: Yeah, well, we put the website up. In August or so. And in August, we didn't even have like a shopping cart built in or anything. It was very much just a placeholder page. We didn't think anybody would land on it. The internet was certainly younger than it is now, but it was still already quite mature. Amazon was already really big and everything like that. There was enough competition out there that we didn't think anybody would just accidentally land on this without any advertising. It was surprising when people actually came to our website by typing in sleepphones.com because they thought that was a natural name for headphones that you could wear in bed. And that was our first customer. He actually came to our website. I contacted him and asked him all kinds of questions because it was surprising. He was like, how do I buy one of these? I was like, well, I guess we could sell you one. But we just don't have a shopping cart yet. I can take your credit card over the phone and I can type it into PayPal. (laughs) So that's how we did it.
0: Were you getting tired of being a doctor or were you still enjoying it? Because it sounded like you developed a product because you wanted to be able to go back to sleep after these calls, but... Was there something else in you that also made you want to start a business?
1: No. You know, my mom, who is a CPA, made me take an accounting class in college. And of all the classes to get a B in, I got mostly A's and I wasn't interested in accounting. So <laughs> so I didn't do as well. I'm just not a business oriented kind of person, although I am kind of creative and entrepreneurial in some ways, but I don't really embody what you would consider a typical CEO. I am an Asian female. Which I guess you are starting to see become CEOs at this point, but I am kind of a passive personality, a non confrontational kind of easygoing person. And I'm very much an introvert as well. I don't like public speaking. I like one on one conversations. So that's very much what you might expect of the entrepreneur, which is usually kind of a brash young white male who enjoys company and has a big ego and doesn't mind getting mad at people and getting his way, that type of thing. And now I'm stereotyping for sure, but I'm just kind of setting up the fact that pretty much anybody can start a company. But the fact that I do have unique challenges because I'm not the typical business person and that's not what the employees expect. And it has been a challenge running a business because of that. I'm also, because I'm a doctor, not a risk taker. Or I guess maybe because I'm not a risk taker, I became a doctor, but they always say that entrepreneurs are risk takers and that's certainly not us. We take calculated risks. We certainly do not do crazy things just to try things out.
0: I think that's important what you're saying because, yeah, I think that's what typically maybe was thought about entrepreneurship, like the good old boys club, white guy who just likes business. And that's why I try to have all different types of entrepreneurs on the show. Maybe it's not that quote unquote typical person that we're stereotyping who's starting a business that there's all different types of people coming from all different types of background. And yours is pretty interesting because coming from a doctor field as well, you go through all that education. And I imagine student loans, unless you're able to get scholarships and then making a move to start your own business when you didn't even consider yourself like, quote unquote, a business person. When you started Acoustic Sheep, did you think you were just going to do this as a side business and kind of phase it out? And where were you as far as income that you're making from your being a doctor and student loans to Acoustic Sheep?
1: So student loans, I was able to fairly quickly pay off. I'm also a very frugal person. You know, I don't spend a lot of money. My husband and I kept working our day jobs for many years. Worked at Penn State for seven years after leaving private practice, seeing the students at the health center. It was only after the fifth year of our business. When you start a business, people always want you to write this business plan. And I didn't know what I was doing. So you have these fields that you're supposed to fill out. So I filled them out. One of them is a projection, like financial projections. I didn't even really understand what a balance sheet was or profit and loss statements or anything like that back then. But I filled out all these numbers, and the projection I filled in for five years was for a million dollars, grossing a million dollars. So I thought, okay, that's funny, but that's what they want to see. So I'm going to fill it out like that. (laughs) And lo and behold, we actually hit all of those projections fairly on the mark. And on the fifth year, when we hit a million dollars, We made more money in the business than we did in our day jobs. And my husband's a software developer, a game developer. We were doing well financially, but... The business was overtaking, even us working part-time in the business was overtaking what we were doing in our day jobs. And
0: when you first made the headphones, it sounded like your husband kind of made them for you and that you were obviously helping too, doing it from the sewing perspective. But after you were making these, did you originally just really think that it was just for you? Or after a while, did you tell people about it and that's when you got the idea to start the business?
1: I made them for me. I think I was the one who came up with the headband idea, but he definitely soldered everything and was the one kind of pushing for a better idea than what was out there. Because it was fairly easy to make, we thought it's something that we could just do off of our kitchen counter and make ourselves and just sell online. And it's very cheap to sell online as long as you're not advertising too much or, you know, you're not spending too much money on it and just kind of put it out there and see what happens. And so that's what we decided to do. We just cost a few hundred dollars in materials, which really isn't much to start a business. And then once we spent a few hundred dollars in materials and people showed interest in it, the fact that it worked for me, that I thought it was so brilliant. (laughs) really certainly helped because it's not like I'd made something and then was trying to find a customer out there. It was basically I needed something. I made it for myself and then I just made a few more because I knew that I had patients that if I couldn't sell them, I could at least give them to my patients. It wasn't going to go to waste. So that's why we just made some and then decided to see what would happen.
0: Payroll and benefits are hard. Especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, 9 out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than 5 minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So, to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire they're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal you'll get three months free once you do your first payroll and again the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire Now that we understand your background, hopefully we'll dive in the first couple of years of the business. I guess the concept of coming up with the headband and using it that way was pretty smart. How many iterations did you have to go through to get the thing working to meet your satisfaction and then make them to sell them online?
1: Not too many. I think we came up with that design Pretty much on the fourth day of working on it.
0: What I hear from a lot of product companies, especially like the retail side, the consumer side, they're first-time sellers. that Usually what happens is they underprice their product. So how did you know what to price your product at? Did you have that issue?
1: We knew that the typical mistake is to underprice, and it's very difficult to recover from underpricing. We did not want to make that mistake. Our time was valuable, and we were making these by hand. It took us over an hour to make these we figured my salary is definitely more than $100 an hour. We decided to price them a little less because maybe we could eventually hire some employees to do this, but we priced it at $80 in the beginning. We were able to go down to $40 for that same basic model, but we've had several iterations, so many different versions. The first version that we came up with worked for me, but we didn't actually sell that. The fabric was from Joanne Fabrics, and it was not quite the right fabric. And then eventually the first 500 that we made, the first version one and version two were using fabric from Joanne Fabrics, just buying them whenever it went on sale. It was version three that we went to Polar Tech, And then by version five, we went to a very similar fabric to Polar Tech, but we bought it directly from the factory.
0: Sounds like those first four months you said earlier you sold 500 products. Why don't you just take us through that first year of what you learned positively or negatively that we can learn from?
1: I think that first year, because it was just me and my husband, there wasn't a whole lot of major challenges. You know, we worked with each other well, complemented each other's strengths and weaknesses, and we were able to just set up a website, make them watch TV while we worked on this after dinner. And it was really quite fun. It was when the fifth year in, When we made a million dollars, we decided to focus more on the company and to get serious about growing it. And at that point, we had to hire some employees. So we hired our first full-time employee and he's still with us, but we quickly grew from there. And so we went from one to 15 in a year. And I think it was around year five when we got serious about it was when it started to get difficult (laughs) because then we had to start dealing with employees
0: we'll jump to that in a second, if you don't mind. But how about years kind of two through five? I mean, were y'all still just doing while you're watching TV? What was your slow growth from there? Because I think these are the important points that instead of just jumping to the employee part, which is important, I think a lot of entrepreneurship podcasts or stories they forget about this other years that we could definitely learn from. What did you end up doing from like year two to year five? Were you starting to outsource these headphones?
1: So after we made them ourselves, we figured and we sold out by Christmas and we were really behind and it was busy around Christmas in our personal lives too. And so we decided that we had to start working with some contractors who knew how to sew we hired some sewing contractors. We basically just posted Craigslist ads and some local people came knocking because it was part-time work. It was in their house. The only thing required was that they not smoke and have pets near the fabric. That way the fabric didn't pick up anything. So with a few requirements, we were able to get the contractors up and going. Basically, I would buy the fabric, I would cut it and then leave it at my front door for them to come pick up. Because I'm at work the rest of the time. And so they would come to my door, pick up the fabric, take it home, sew it, bring it back. And then the next person in line would basically come along and pick up the supplies, the sewed stuff, to take it for soldering. And then they would solder the speakers into it. It was a 20-step process from start to finish. And basically, I divvied it up into chunks and had three or four people working on each clump of the steps and
0: would you just have it like in a lockbox for them, like for each person or was it literally just outside your door where only they could get it
1: it was literally just at our front door we were okay. in a pretty suburban safe neighborhood and so it was kind of what worked for us it was the easiest thing for us to do and so they just kind of came to our door picked up the box that was labeled for them and then off they go and then a few days later, they'd come back with whatever they did, and they filled out all the different steps that they did, and we paid them with that.
0: Two questions: Were you getting pre-orders like from the people online before you made them? No. Were you paid them per hour, or like were you paying them like twenty dollars to get one step done? Per piece. Okay, per piece.
1: So I timed out how much time it would take for me to do it, and then I paid them basically higher than a living wage to do this. That's how we decided to do it.
0: Why don't we just talk about that year five when you're talking when you made your first real employee hire was the years two through five. Basically, you kept doing the same thing, but just as far as hiring that contract work to help you make these headphones and just slowly expand until you're ready to hire your first employee.
1: Kind of. After we had those contractors for a while, it was kind of getting a little hard to manage them because sometimes it would take them a little longer to complete a step. And so then everybody else would be held up and eventually life got in the way. So one person had to move away because their husband got a job somewhere else. Another had a baby, another got a divorce, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was getting hard to keep them and to keep them trained up and doing what we needed them to do and decided to find a factory to help us with this. And so we were able to hook up with some local entrepreneurs who also had a sewing need. They told us the factory that they used and we went to them. It was in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. So it was about an hour from where we lived at the time. We were able to use them for a few years until we outgrew their production, where they had a harder time keeping up and the Asia sewing techniques were actually better and we were getting higher quality from Asia. We decided to then move all of that to the sewing part of things anyway, over to Asia. Where in Asia? In the Shenzhen area. It's where pretty much all electronics and everything in this world that has anything to do with headphones go through.
0: Do they speak Chinese over there? I'm not sure where Shenzhen is.
1: Yes, they do. It's very close to Hong Kong. Which speaks Cantonese, but really pretty much anybody in Hong Kong speaks Chinese as well because Hong Kong is the trading center of that entire Asia region. A lot of things go through there. And so the Hong Kong people, most of them are in business in some way or another assisting the international trade.
0: Did you know how to speak
1: Chinese? I do. Yeah.
0: Okay. I guess that must have been pretty beneficial.
1: Yes. And in some ways, it was mostly communicating by email in English. I wouldn't say that it was critical back then, but knowing where the pitfalls are in communication was definitely helpful because I do speak some Chinese. Because I came to the U.S. when I was seven, I don't actually know how to read and write very well at all. I wasn't able to communicate fully with the Chinese, but I knew verbally where they might have problems and you know where there might be misunderstandings.
0: Are you looking for cash money? For your next big idea, maybe you've thought of Kickstarter or Indiegogo as a way of raising funds. The problem with those guys is the average campaign will only earn you 5000 bucks. If you need more than that for your next business or project, well then consider using StartEngine. StartEngine is the largest equity crowdfunding site in the U.S. And over 85% of companies on their platform successfully reach their funding goal. That's compared to 36% on Kickstarter. By setting up a campaign with StartEngine, you set your own terms and company valuation. There's no VCs or angel investors telling you what your company is worth. So to help get funding for your future business or product and to support the show, go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash start. By using this link, They'll know you're one of the smartest podcast listeners on the planet. Plus, you'll get 20% off your initial campaign. So again, the link is millionaire-interviews.com forward slash starts. And for your convenience, check the episode description for all of our advertiser links. By visiting these links, you help support the show. So thank you for visiting them and for being a loyal listener. How about telling us when you went to that factory? What year was it before you made the move over to Asia? What year was it?
1: I didn't actually initially go to the factory. It was basically I made what I kind of a perfect sample and I asked them to make some back. And it was just a lot of fetus back and forth with the factory to make sure that we had what we call the golden sample. Once you got that perfect one, then you would make... Well, back then I just went into mass production. But what I would advise people to do is to go into batch production first If it's something that's not too costly, you might make a few hundred pieces. And that would be a good batch to know kind of consistency and quality. And one of the things that we care a lot about is the fit. And how comfortable it is. So if you're getting a small from us, then that small is going to have a tolerance of just a few millimeters. So when you get that batch production, you can know whether or not your factory is meeting that tolerance level or not. And you know how many are falling outside of that tolerance level. Then you can correct any potential issues, any production issues with them, try to troubleshoot where the problems might be, or just hold them more accountable and tell them that you're not going to pay them for any that fall outside of your tolerances. And then once you've got a good handle on that production, then you can go into mass production.
0: That's the Asian factory you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. How about also the U.S. factory? Because you didn't know anything about factories before you met your first one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that was great advice you just gave about batch production, using that technique when you're getting started. How about that one that was an hour away from you? Like, What did you learn about factory production and the differences between the one that was an hour away from your house and the one that was in Asia?
1: The one that was a little bit closer, we could visit more and we had better relationships with in terms of working out any issues. But there really weren't that many issues because they knew what we wanted. I mean, it was pretty straightforward. I think one major difference between Asian factories and American factories or just people and, and business practices in general, is that when you're working with somebody overseas, you have to have very clear specifications because if there's any misunderstanding or miscommunication, or if somebody's trying to cut corners, if you have those clear specifications, it makes that much harder for them to do. Whereas in the U.S., You can trust that they're going to not cut corners. You can trust that they're going to do everything to their utmost and tell you if something is an issue, if they have a problem with something, they're going to tell you here in the U.S. and you can go back and forth and troubleshoot. Whereas in Asia, they may not tell you and you may not know until the last minute that there was consistently this issue in production because they just don't know to tell you. It's a very different mindset. Here in the U.S., we're trained to think for yourself. And to not be afraid to speak up. Whereas in Asia, people are just trained to do what they're told. And if they're not told any different, they're not going to bring anything up. Does that make sense?
0: That definitely does. I mean, that mindset, I think a lot of us could see that. Even you were saying that as an Asian woman, they're just quieter, maybe again, in generalities, right? Yep. And maybe American Factory can call you right away and figure it out. At the end of the day, the reason you switched was really just solely pricing. I mean, everything was perfect with the American Factory.
1: No, actually, the quality here in the US was not as good. They didn't sew all the way to the edge because it was harder to do and it would have been a lot more costly to do so. But I'm not even sure that they could have done it because I think they were doing the best they can. They were used to sewing outdoor products like tarps and tents and stuff like that. And the tolerances that we needed were really more along the lines of clothing. For me, high-end clothing. And so I wanted very detail-oriented kind of work and they just weren't used to that. They didn't have the machines for that. The U.S. factory, they did the best they could and it was very good for a long time, but the Asia factories were better suited for what we needed as we grew.
0: And I think that's important because there's different stages in your company. I think everyone's company where maybe you're focusing on different things. For you, the quality was good enough for those couple of years. But then when you want to enhance it and go improve your business, maybe you're trying to improve something else in your business, maybe like marketing or something else. And then you come back to the production and now it's time for us to raise our level there if we want to get more sales. So Mm -hmm. was that the mindset?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We wanted to increase our quality and to lower our pricing.
0: You were able to do both that with the factory move. And then that was, are we saying year four, year three, year four?
1: Yeah, that was around year four.
0: Year five, you said you finally get your first full-time employee. Mm -hmm. At that point, I mean, how much profit are you bringing in to make that hire? Because when do you know it's time to get that first hire because I think that's what a lot of businesses struggle with as well. Because maybe it's easier to think about it when it's just you and your husband, but when you have to bring somebody else on, that could be kind of scary.
1: Basically, we were selling out of our house and it had taken over our garage, our basement, pretty much every room in our house, our spare bedroom, and even really our own master bedroom and living room and everything. So we needed to get a warehouse outside of our house to Hold all of our inventory. And so the person that we wanted to hire was my husband's brother because. We knew that he would be dedicated, he'd be able to do a good job shipping everything out. He was a hard worker. And so that was kind of an easy decision for us because we knew that we needed to increase our sales and we couldn't do all of the shipping ourselves anymore. And we hired him to do that.
0: And you knew where he lived, so that helped.
1: And yeah, and he lived in Erie, which is about three and a half hours from where we lived at the time in the Belfont State College area where Penn State was and we still had our day jobs. And we set him up with a warehouse in Erie and shipped everything over to him. But then we found ourselves driving back and forth almost every weekend to do computer stuff and to help him hire new people to work for him. So eventually, after doing this for a year, we decided to move up ourselves. In 2014, about seven years after we started the business, we were able to move up to Erie.
0: Pretty interesting that y'all decided to move up there. I mean, was there more than just going because of the storage? Normally, you'd have the person who's working for you come where you're staying at, right?
1: (laughs) Right, yeah. But part of the decision to hire him was because he knew a lot of people, had a lot of contacts. Part of our first set of hires were basically people from his softball team. And most of the people that we worked with had staple day jobs and were professionals in one way or another who wouldn't want to come pack in a warehouse setting. Whereas a lot of the people that he knew were a little bit more blue collar, or actually his wife is a teacher. Some of the teachers had days off, especially in the summer, to come help work for us. It kind of worked out that he knew a lot more people who could work for us. And that's why we decided to set the warehouse up in Erie. And also, I think for my husband, because he grew up in the Erie area, he felt kind of an obligation to come back and bring jobs to the area. It's certainly a rust belt area that's not doing so well financially. It's certainly not growing quickly. And we wanted to bring back some of the industry and the jobs.
0: seems like it worked in two favors because like you were saying, they're more blue collar workers where you could get that labor versus maybe all your friends make $500 an hour as doctors and aren't willing to package those headphones up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess also if he's from the area, it makes sense too. If you already had something established and would make it more than just for business reasons as well. It seemed like that worked out. When you moved up there, did you stop being a doctor?
1: Yeah, that was kind of the turning point. One of the turning points in the business was going full-time into the business. And so my husband and I quit our day jobs formally at that point. We had enough for sure. I think it depends on the person and how much of a risk taker you are. And we're not, we certainly had enough saved up in order to make this transition. And also every place is in need for doctors. So it wasn't like, it was that much of a risk for us to try this. And if it didn't work out, I could just go back and do kind of my day job again. So it depends on, on how much risk you're willing to take and how long you think you can survive, how much uh, financial obligations you have out there paying employees where you need to be able to make payroll for them for some time and hopefully not draw on your personal funds. We were basically profitable from day one. We never really did get into debt It wasn't that difficult of a choice for us. I think for a lot of people with the types of business that you're in, it may not be possible to grow slowly like we did. And then you would have to make that leap faster. So I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. It really depends on your comfort level and how much you need to have.
0: From day one, you've always been profitable. So did you just always take that profits from the company and just keep them in your bank account? Yes. Okay. Depending on your situation in the business, you would just take from that. And then, for instance, whenever you had to buy a lot of product, you just had it in that account. You'd go pay for it whenever you had to do upgrades it was all from day one profit. It wasn't from your savings as a doctor? Correct. Okay, well, that's pretty interesting too because then it, even if you weren't a doctor, it basically it wouldn't have mattered, but that was your personal income that you just saved. So that's what you're saying that save all your personal income that was in your personal accounts versus the business account, which always just paid for itself. You never put any more money into it after day one?
1: Yeah, pretty much. We've already drawn quite a bit from the business. So no, we never were in debt with the business. It's been profitable.
0: How did you know when it was time to start? drawn from the business. Probably never did personally until you moved out to Erie, Pennsylvania.
1: Well, when we hit a million dollars in sales and it was making more money than we did in our day jobs and it certainly did not need that much money in the bank account, we drew from that and put that towards a down payment. For our house in Erie. We still live, I think, within our means and plan to do so. You know, we draw what we need and we keep everything else in the business.
0: I no, I think that's an important part because what happens, it seems like a lot, especially if they're getting funding, you're using all your money from the beginning. You're still being frugal with it, which I think is important. But some people who go get that funding go ahead and go buy the newest shiny object for their quote unquote business, even though it's not really gonna necessarily help them grow their business. That's been an important key in your business being profitable and growing.
1: Yeah, I will have to admit, though, when we won the small business of the year in 2016, we did go out and buy a shiny new object. (laughs) Uh, What was that? Uh, It was a Tesla.
0: Oh, okay. I think you're allowed to reward yourself. I mean... (laughs) So how did you end up winning that? Why don't we go fast forward a little bit more from 2012 to 2016? As you said, you won that award in 2016.
1: So yeah, we were doing well financially and We had grown quickly, hired a lot of people, I think built a good company culture and made a name for ourselves in the region with the Small Business Development Center. And we were able to win that award because they nominated us.
0: You said you grew into a lot of people because at first it was just your brother in law in 2012. So how fast were you growing with the other people in your business? And tell us about that experience because you said that was kind of the hardest part, it sounds like, of growing the business. Can you give us specific examples? Because I don't want to speak too much like, in generalities about this because well I'll say for instance my brother he has something similar as commercial acoustics where he has a factory production line and those employees have a different type of mindset it's just those type of production people that you're gonna pay are used to a certain mindset and I guess more used to that than maybe as much turnover as you might have as a doctor per se am I wrong about that
1: no no I think I don't want to like single anybody out necessarily <laughs>
0: Well, you don't have to say a name, but just give us like an example of what you were doing wrong and then how you're able to figure that out, how to keep more employees. Because it sounds like it became a better workplace over time, but there had to be certain things that you put in place to help keep people on board.
1: So early on, part of our company culture is that we wanted to hire, attract and hire adults who don't need a lot of handholding, who don't need micromanaging, you know, a manager to make sure that they're cracking the whip and getting the people to work. We wanted people to be able to bring up problems in their work to management so that we can help them do a better job and to enhance the business overall. But not everybody is able to do that. Some people have issues with, for example, one person did not want to have somebody overseeing them And it was really difficult to see that, but they would undermine their boss every time. And once we kind of pinpointed that, we try to correct it for a long time. But at some point, you just have to say that person's not correctable and you need to let them go.
0: Should you have fired them sooner?
1: You know, at this point, I'm firing a lot faster than I did in the beginning.
0: Yeah. So that's, I think that's a key point. And can you tell us why?
1: I don't think people can change that easily once they have established their habits at work. It's just impossible to change. And if they don't like supervision, they'll never like supervision. (laughs) There's no way to get them to do that. And then there are people who are very aggressive and will try to undermine their colleagues. Those people you don't want around either. And we had to get rid of those. Some people don't speak up. They're too passive. They don't tell you about their problems, what you can help them with. So because of their passivity, They are kind of passive aggressive in the way that they deal with problems and that's not helpful either.
0: What's the best piece of advice you give those small businesses that look up to you?
1: I don't have a silver bullet. I think one of the things that we struggle with is listening to bad advice. There's a lot of bad advice out there and a lot of people who seem like they might be good advice givers. Who don't know our business and just give us a blanket scenario where something worked for them and perhaps a few other businesses, but wouldn't work for us just because we're different in some way or another. So it's really hard to pinpoint an easy solution, easy nugget to hold on to. But I think from a broader perspective, I think knowing yourself as an entrepreneur, as a person, as a human being is very important. And if you know where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are, then you can hire people or you can work with people to offset some of your weaknesses. I think just knowing yourself and being very realistic about who you are, what the business is, and where the business could go, stuff like that, being real is very important. I think that's as firm a nugget as I can give simply because every business is different. There's no firm stats or numbers that you can hold on to.
0: I think that is important what you said at the end. And that's why I try to have different entrepreneurs on who have different type of industries, but exactly what you said. There's a lot of people who like to give advice. And just because they're giving you advice, you always got to think about like, what perspective are they coming from? And is that advice really going to help you? Because at first you feel like all the advice you gets good, but that's not necessarily true. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. We've lived many years with advice. That's fairly marginal.
0: Can you give us the least marginal piece of advice you had been given over the last couple of years?
1: Quite a few. I think, for example, we recently had an argument of how much you need to pay salespeople. Should it be a high base or low base with a lot of incentive built in? So that's something that you have to figure out for yourself, for your company. And for us, it happened to be a certain way. But for a long time, we were operating on a certain dollar figure that somebody had given us and it didn't work well for us.
0: Before were you doing high base and low commission or low commission and high base?
1: It was a higher base for sure.
0: Now you have low base and higher commission percentage. Right. And it worked out way better.
1: You know, the base may need to vary because for that person, I think he was coming from a very industrial background and he needed engineers to be his salespeople. And they did have to have a higher base because they came out of college with a much higher degree versus the typical salesperson who's hungry. That's the kind of person we wanted was a hungry salesperson. We found that works better for us, but it really does depend on the industry again.
0: Yeah, well, kind of, but I just think that was kind of shitty advice because I've come from sales and I'm going to say that anyone who's good at sales, Mm -hmm. they want the high commission because they're going to work that much harder. The guy who's not a good sales guy wants a high base. So personally, if I went to go work for a company... I mean, I would love a high base. I was offered that before I started a podcast. They'll give me a huge base, a little commission. I'm like, okay, that's good for me because low risk. But am I going to probably work as hard if I end up taking that job? Probably not. Versus if I have no base or just a minimum base, let's say 12000 bucks a year and higher commission, well, you better believe I'm going to be working two, three times harder. And then I get more incentive to work a little bit harder.
1: Yeah. And you would think that the higher base would attract a higher quality kind of person. That's not necessarily true.
0: Yeah, I'll agree with that too. Because then, yeah, that person's probably really not made out to be a good salesperson because they want that higher base versus a person who's a go-getter. If they look at what you could make versus with the low base and higher commission, then you're getting someone who's more driven, I would think, automatically. That was important nugget there. If someone wanted to reach you and say, thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you and say thank you?
1: The best way to reach me... Shen at AcousticSheep.com. That's W-E-I-S-H-I-N at A-C-O-U-S-T-I-C-S-H-E-E-P.com. Or just fill out the form on our sleep phone's website. That's S-L-E-E-P-P-H-O-N-E-S.com. There's customer service forms, and they'll forward everything over to me. We're not that big, so I pretty much see everything.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time, Wei Shen, to tell us about your company and how you did it, and inspiring the people who are listening to the podcast.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: If you have questions that you want answered on a follow-up episode, then leave us a voicemail or text us at one three zero five nine eight five. 3469. This is our new phone number for all of you to voice your questions or comments about the show. So just leave your name, place where you're calling from, and message, and we'll play your recording for our thousands of listeners worldwide. Again, that number is 1-305-985-3469.